the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business, a podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Laura Slattery and on today's show I'll be talking to Owen Burke Kennedy about the National Broadband Plan. Is the three billion project a misguided expense or a vital infrastructure that simply must go ahead? Fiona Redden is here with an update on the ambitions of retail king Mike Ashley, the man who wants to turn House of Fraser into Harrods of the High Street. But first, Peter Hamilton has a roundup of this week's business news. Peter, what's going on? Well, I suppose the, the, the first thing that we should have a look at is what the European Commission said yesterday about Ireland's economic growth. Uh, this is interesting because across the entire bloc, the European Commission revised downwards uh, expected growth in the region and, and Ireland was no different. Uh, they said GDP growth here will moderate to 3.8% this year and 3.4% in 2020. I suppose it's worth noting that's still really good growth. Uh, but in the context of Ireland's growth, it's a bit subdued. We have had growth much in excess of that on the back yeah. of multinationals. I mean, I think it was more than 7%, wasn't it, in 2017 and about 6.7% last year. And so this this is a more moderate rate of growth. It is. It has been very strong. And the reason it's been so strong is because of the effect of multinationals. When that's factored out, it's not nearly as high. But so this still is good on paper. The number is still high. It's higher than every other European country. Uh, but it, it's it's less than we're used to. So I suppose what they saw as being particularly gloomy was Brexit. That's the foreign challenge that we have. And domestically, there are signs of overheating that could become more apparent. That's what the, the European Commission said. Um, but they were still optimistic about the Irish government's financial position uh, and suggested a surplus of 0.3% GDP in the budget in, in 2020. So, look, although it is relatively gloomy, it's still forecasting an expansion for the seventh year in a row in 2019. Uh, so, so, look... <sighs> It's, it's not the worst news in the world, but there are threats out there such as China and the, the trade war. OK, yeah. Now, we should probably mention that, that, you know, the EU forecasts are pretty similar to the Department of Finance's own ones, which are 3.9% uh, growth this year and 3.3% next year. So they're slightly more optimistic for 2019 and slightly uh, more pessimistic for 2020. But you mentioned the threats there. Obviously, Brexit is the key one and Ireland is very exposed. Uh, but we've seen a lot of turmoil this week on the uh, international stock markets uh, as, as a result of the ongoing trade tensions. I think we're all bored of using that phrase, ongoing trade tensions. But they have been reignited this week by threats of, of tariffs from the White House. You know, what? What's is that just basically, is Ireland just caught in the crossfire of that the, the way, same way the rest of Europe is, do you think? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the performance of the Isaac yesterday, it was down in excess of 1%. That's a significant fall for an index as small as that. It is very heavily weighted. One of the big weightings there, obviously, is CRH, which is very exposed to the US, uh, or, or, or would be, um, if Trump's Donald Trump's infrastructure plan uh, proceeds. Um, but in any event, look, global tr trade is obviously a worry for us, particularly as a, an economy with such a multinational focus as we have now. Uh, any any threat to that is obviously going to affect us just as much as, as, as any other open economy. OK, well, now, one US company that has been looking at the Irish market is Dual, Dual Labs. Now, I don't actually know a whole lot about Dual Labs, but they are pretty much one of the key e-cigarette makers and they have, uh, they're have they 35% owned by 
Uh, Altria. Tell me about mm. Altria. Yeah, well, so Altria is the parent company that that owns Marlboro, which uh, any I suppose any non-smokers would be familiar with the, the Marlboro brand. But just on Jewel, when I, you know, I, I was actually in New York before Christmas and heard about Jewel and saw uh, a lot about Jewel. And it's funny as a as an outsider to to be able to see that kind of branding or to be able to come home and remember that. I think that's a bit unusual. They're big so spenders, obviously. They're obviously big spenders on advertising, and that's why they're the leader in their field in the US. Uh, and so now they've come here. This will be their their tenth territory, and they're targeting uh, our eight hundred and thirty thousand smokers. They launched here on Tuesday. Uh, so as we mentioned, Altria has a thirty five percent stake, and just for those what they sell is vape products for those who aren't familiar with uh, vape products they're seen as less harmful cigarette replacements uh, and the users of vapes inhale vapor rather than uh, smoke so it emits these things like tar and uh, and and some health bodies uh, particularly in the UK have have uh, have suggested that vapes are good if you want to Wean Stop yourself smoking. off exactly. harmful yeah, yeah. tobacco. Not good, not good, but, uh, but they're less bad than Yeah, than less bad because they still contain nicotine, so they they're do. they're addictive. Yeah. Um, now, the HSE ha- hasn't gone so far as to uh, as to recommend them just yet, but, but other uh, bodies have. So, I mean, look, the, the, the problem, I suppose, universally is that there's a danger that these will uh, appeal to teens, teenagers. Uh, now, the, the bosses of Juul who are in Dublin or some executives from Juul who are in Dublin said that it's still, uh, there's still no legislation which bans the sale of vapes to under 18s and they were calling for that to be introduced here in the Republic. So uh, that would obviously be a step in the right direction. It's quite interesting that they would call <laughs> they would call for their product to be banned from under 18 so under yeah, what else they're calling for uh, that they're maybe not quite so uh, public about. about. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Look, uh, I presume as under 18s got access to cigarettes while they were banned, even if these were banned, they'd probably get access to these. Maybe uh, maybe I'm wrong in saying that, but you'd have to think that just banning something doesn't mean uh, it suddenly won't be available. Anyway, we'll see how they get on. Okay, so one company that's doing quite well at the moment is Match Group and they're the parent company of the dating app Tinder, among other services. Yeah. Tell me about what their fortunes are like? Well, look, yesterday evening they saw their shares rise 8% uh, after they said they had 4.7 million average subscribers in the quarter, but Tinder added 384,000 new subscribers in the quarter alone. Uh, The revenue of the company as a whole in the quarter was $464 million. Very significant for a dating company uh, and obviously people are spending money across their products. I suppose other things that they run include OkCupid and Plenty of Fish. So what they're doing now is they're looking outside of their established markets and they're looking to, to, to uh, I suppose, to the east. Uh, they've appointed now general managers in Tokyo, Seoul and Delhi. They want to grow their presence in those regions. They see arranged marriages being on the decline in India and they see the stigma towards dating in Japan eroding. Plenty of opportunity for dating, plenty of opportunity for Tinder, it would seem. 
I mean, that's a real pattern. I'm sort of starting to to notice in a really big way the number of um, sort of app companies that are pinning their hopes on India uh, for for market growth. So maybe we, maybe we should investigate that one closer on another occasion. But Tinder is a really kind of. I mean, it's not the only say the only part of Match, but it's it's the one that really plays to the kind of the the singles market really it's not about meeting your partner for life necessarily yeah. it's about going out there and having fun and look uh, Tinder is, is as you mentioned they're the biggest constituent part uh, of Match and it is about their going uh, and going out having fun I suppose it's now seeing competitors in the form of Bumble and things like that so there are competitors on the scene now whether they'll expand at the same pace given the money Match Group has behind it it's hard to see how they could uh, and yeah I, I, I I understand what you're saying about expanding into India and how all of these are pinning their hopes on that market, but it's a massive market. If they get even a small share, uh, yeah. it could be hugely significant. Even a little bit of success might make them yeah. very happy indeed. Um, so tell me, who owns Match Group? So it's controlled by billionaire Barry Diller, and as I mentioned, there runs a plethora of other dating sites. It is, I suppose, the most well, the, the most prominent, uh, most prominent. Dating company? Is that what uh, it's Tinder is called? That, I think that, you could that, call that it dating, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think a lot of people just do the swiping part um, for fun and never, never yeah. really make it to a date. But. Well, and, and look, I suppose uh, Match Group probably accept that that, that happens uh, and they are investing in other features like video features so that users can post uh, videos uh, to their dating profile. But look, uh, a lot of hard work. swiping right and swiping left has become part of the language now of dating and in the same way that Uber uh, is talked about when you're talking about getting a taxi, uh, I suppose Tinder is, is very much part of dating now. And I suppose it's a bit like any relationship. It's doing well right now, but Match Group probably wouldn't really want to get too complacent about it. That's no, absolutely. They do, I, I presume they don't want the same, uh, same outcome as Hoover. Well, on that note, thanks very much, Peter. Thank you. Seven years after it was first announced, the National Broadband Plan now has its preferred bidder. But is it, after all that, worth the money? And do critics of the procurement process have a point? I'm joined by Irish Times journalist Owen Burke-Kennedy. Owen, maybe first of all, you could give us a quick recap of what's happened this week. Yeah, uh, difficult to uh, sum it up in a while, but essentially on Tuesday, the government announced the preferred bidder for its long-running procurement process. Um, and the preferred bidder just happens to be the only uh, vehicle person company left in the in the bidding uh, contest, and that's Granahan McCourt, which is a U.S. Uh, telecoms investor. Uh, so, and it's a consortium led by U.S. businessman David McCourt. Now, listeners will remember that former communications minister Dennis Nocton was forced to resign over a series of meetings he held with Mr. McCourt last year. So uh, that played out uh, as a backdrop to the procurement process. But um, as stipulated in the contract terms, the, the winning uh, company, Granahan McCourt, will now incorporate themselves uh, as National Broadband Ireland. So this is going to become the kind of title name, the kind of Irish water, if you like, of telecommunications. Not to give it a, <laughs> oh, a day in the type look, but the, the, the National Broadband Ireland is going to be the company we'd be referring to. OK, and what's the reaction been like? Well, the government uh, have been on a bit of a charm offensive of late. They've gone out and they've heralded this. This is a new dawn for rural Ireland and, you know, referenced it and likened it to the kind of electrification projects of the 20th century. Which took 30 years, I think, <laughs> from start to finish. Yeah, yeah, that's a scary notion. Uh, anyway, um, 
the opposition and various industry experts, however, all along have questioned the economics of it. And that's because the cost has uh, largely been hidden from us for for a large amount of time as this competitive procurement process, as it was at the beginning, went on. So there's a lot of reservations about the money being spent. And we only know that the government subsidy part is $3 billion. We actually, at this stage, don't know what the entire cost of the scheme is going to be. And that is... Um, a very interesting fact. The government, in all the bells and whistles, all the announcements um, yesterday, all we got was how much the taxpayer is stumping up. Now, that leads you to be suspicious that, you know, are they embarrassed about the numbers on the other side? doesn't really sound like best practice, it has to be said, in, in these situations. Well, I, I've been kind of fobbed off or rebuffed by the notion that maybe it's commercially sensitive, but with the tender kind of over... And only one firm left in the market, you'd wonder, if is that a reasonable excuse at this stage? I mean, I think the taxpayer would like to know just how much risk the government is actually shouldering, or the, I should say the state is shouldering this project. So Timmy Dooley, who's the uh, Fianna Fáil um, spokesman on this issue, he's called it a PR exercise and he's tied in the press conference this week with the uh, upcoming uh, local European elections. Yeah, and, and and that's been said for quite a while that the government wants to get its its kind of broadband house in order before these elections. And um, I mean, he's had his finger on the pulse politically, more, maybe more than I would, but um, I mean, the broadband problem has become a major, major headache for government. Uh, and if you remember, um, you know, during the last election, it, it was mentioned a lot on the doorsteps. And the government's kind of election slogan of keep the recovery going played really badly with rural voters. And broadband is seen as a kind of dividing line between rural and urban areas. And it's something the government really wants to get right and really needs to get right. And if they were to make a mess of it, at this stage, they could land themselves, you know, in hot water politically. So to say that they're just announcing this project to get over the hump of mm. European and local elections may be a stretch because, I mean, they really need to get this thing right. It would be an extraordinarily large <laughs> hump, <laughs> a very expensive hump to clear. Uh, but, and of course, they have been at it for some time. Um, but who stands to benefit from well, this? You know, I suppose the project, just to, to stand back and have a look at it, um, I mean, if this project comes uh, and is completed, we will have the entire of rural Ireland connected to high-speed broadband via mainly a fibre network, which would propel Ireland way into the 21st century and put us way ahead of uh, peer countries like the UK, like France and Germany. And with more and more of our daily transactions going online, with the demand for you know, uh, connectivity going up, I mean, it would be completely transformative and it would at least, um, you know, do away with one of the great disparities between living in, in a rural place in Ireland and living in an urban place. Um, that that would be the main benefit. But obviously with all these projects, there's there's a cost-benefit analysis that the, the, the department are, says is still on the, on the kind of benefit side. But... It's interesting that we just still haven't got the full cost of this project yet. And the plan has changed a lot since it was originally conceived. Well, initially the plan with a cost of around 500 million involved rolling uh, high-speed broadband fibre, but that was never stipulated, out to villages and maybe using uh, a wireless technology to get to the more remote locations. 
uh, that's been uh, that's evolved now into basically doing a fiber rollout to about ninety eight percent of the five hundred and forty two thousand homes and businesses earmarked by the plan. So the government did say that the final two percent of homes would probably be another technology because they're just so remote. But this is really about right to access broadband in the same way that you would, uh, uh, you know, other utilities, if we accept that broadband's a utility like water and so on. Um, But whether or not people then, you know, take up broadband, that's a whole other question, isn't it? And that you you put your finger on on a major thing. I think for most of the companies, most of the players involved, it's pretty easy to cost just how much it would be to roll out fibre broadband to all of the places involved in the contract. The big, big uncertainty is what's the take-up going to be like? Because that's going to basically uh, underpin the operational costs. And now as a backdrop to this, remember the entire telecoms industry here has shunned the project, even Mm. with a massive fat government check at the end of it which is really revealing and very worrying. I think at the outset, uh, the government expected a big utility, maybe an air, maybe an ESB, who are in the telecoms market through CSIRO, to be coming in and doing this project. Instead, we have a US investment vehicle, not a utility, not an operations uh, unit, now in line to do this project. So the take-up of um, broadband, once this network goes down, is a big uncertainty. And there's no doubt that the company involved will be wanting the state, the government, to shoulder a bit of this risk. And the question is, with only one firm in the bidding race, has the government taken on too much risk? So AIR was one of the companies, as you say, that they backed away from it, but they're sort of still sort of connected to the process. Yeah, it's Tell interesting. Us about that. Well, AIR, AIR had always been the pre-race favourite to win this contract because they're the biggest telecoms firm in the country. They have the biggest network. And remember, the whole national broadband plan is going to basically build out, if you like, from AIR's existing network. So AIR controversially dropped out of the process last year. Uh, that's uh, after they managed to get the go- convince the government to farm out around 300,000 homes earmarked for the plan into their commercial rollout. So a lot of people criticised the company thinking they were cherry-picking, if you like, the kind of quasi-commercial end of the project and leaving the most remote, the most uneconomic homes for who would ever, ever would win the project. So Air left, if you like, with the kind of quasi-commercial end of the project, as it was entitled to do. I mean, it's it's a commercial company. It's beholden to its shareholders, not to the state. Um, so after that point, uh, the project was left with around 550,000 uh, homes. Now, to get to those homes... Uh, we're not going to build an entirely new network. We're going to basically use a lot of the existing infrastructure. And who owns the existing infrastructure but AIR? Mm -hmm. And so AIR are going to be paid a rent for use of its poles and its ducts. And uh, that rent is going to be somewhere around a billion euros during the lifetime of the project. So AIR have managed to, if you like, carve out some of the project for itself and now benefit from a rent to the tune of a billion for a lifetime project. Pretty good result for them. Yeah, so the other thing that has become clear this week is that the Department of Finance uh, senior inf- officials within it have raised objections uh, pretty clearly to this on, on a value for money basis. But the Minister for Finance, uh, Pascal Donoghue, has said that on balance he supports it because of the, the benefits to the rural community and the long-term uh, benefits. Is there, you know, just a chance that they might still 
just walk away from the whole thing? Well, I mean, that's what we thought might have happened up to this point. I mean, it seemed the government and utterances from uh, Minister Bruton seemed like the government might have been wavering on what to do. And it would have been a difficult sell to step down from this project and to announce a plan B. God knows what that would have been. And it would have equally had to go on a major uh, publicity drive to convince the public that they were on the right uh, track. Instead, they've decided to push ahead with this project. Uh, And we've heard it time and time again, this newspaper has reported time and time again, that there's been reservations registered to the government from, you know, government officials. So uh, it's difficult to know just what sort of wrangle, what sort of fight has gone on in government over this. I mean, the cabinet meeting yesterday in which they approved the plan went on for a number of hours longer than it normally would have. So there must have been dissenting voices in there. And no one would dispute the benefits of uh, bringing this type of technology to rural Ireland. But there has to be a cost-benefit analysis. And at the moment, the department says the benefit outweighs the costs, even at $3 billion for public subsidy. So... Um, that's where we're at. So if you are somebody in the national broadband plan area, remote rural area, and you can't currently get any high speed broadband or any broadband worth talking about, you desperately want it, you hope the national broadband plan will be your solution. When can you expect yeah, well, that's <laughs> to get a, it? A six million dollar question. You might in, in theory have been, this plan was first announced, believe it or not, by former Minister Pat Rabbit back in 2012, which yeah. is now like nearly eight years ago, which is just incredible. Um, anyway, yesterday the government said that the entire project would be done in seven years, which brings us to 2026. They'll sign the contract later this year and shovels will be in the ground either very late this year or at the beginning of 2020. Uh, now, in terms of like which homes get done first, uh, the government have stipulated that the, the, um, the company involved will have to start in every county at the same time and begin to roll out uh, the project. So they can't kind of do bits first. They will have to start gradually everywhere. But, I mean, it's a very technically difficult project. And infrastructurally and logistically, it, it's, 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 it's complex how they would go about doing so, so doing it. So some homes will obviously be, be uh, furnished with high-speed broadband pretty quickly. Um, and some will have to wait. And then, of course, there's the final 2% that, uh, you know, may be waiting up to, up to seven years, which would mean it would nearly be 15 years since this first plan was first announced that they'll be getting their broadband. Right. Well, the saga continues. Thank you very much, Owen Burke-Kennedy. Coming up, how are department stores coping in the age of online shopping? Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Have you found yourself in a department store that's a little emptier than you were expecting? Once thriving chains from Debenhams in the UK to Sears in the US have endured high-profile financial struggles as more people turn to online shopping, one man has been gung-ho about their future. Sports Direct owner Mike Ashley is the man who bought House of Fraser, which he said he would turn into a Harrods of the High Street. How's that plan working out? Irish Times journalist Fiona Redden has been to its Dundrum store to find out. Fiona, 
Is it House of Harrods or more like Fraser Direct? <laughs> um, I think it's somewhere in between, Laura, possibly. When you go into the store, much still remains as it always has been. But when you go upstairs, you'll find racks of um, what you can expect to find in your typical Sports Direct outlet, which are racks of Sports Direct owned sports brands such as Lonsdale, Dunlop, um, Everlast. So they've baskets of these socks now on sale in their previously quite plush homeware department, um, discounted sports bags. And they also have a separate sports section upstairs. Is that what people are looking for or do you think people are missing the old House of Fraser? Well, that's the question I guess he's hoping to address with this or is he? Is this part of his strategy? I mean, as you said, his goal was to bring it more up market, more like Harrods. What he's achieved so far is to bring it more down market, one could suggest, you know, with your baskets of um, tube socks in the corner. So, um, And these are things that, you know, people can find elsewhere. I mean, that's that's the, the issue really, isn't it? That is the issue, Laurie. You can find these um, not, not only elsewhere, but you can find it in a cheaper rented place elsewhere. You can find it in the outskirts of the city centre, you know, or the suburbs rather in retail parks, not in Dundrum, where rents have always been quite expensive. So to make that financially viable by selling lower um, cost goods might be challenging. So just to go back to that phrase, Harrods of the High Street. Now, he said that last year when he was when he was taking it over. Is it a contradiction in terms, do you think, Harrods of the High Street? Yes and no, I guess, because you will find that there's some very upmarket boutique type department stores. I mean, like Liberty in London always springs to mind. They're smaller there, but they managed to be on the high street and not quite at the same level as Harrods. Mm. But I think it was a phrase possibly now that he just threw out there, perhaps, because um, he had no strategy, it seems, to increase the level of brands that he's bringing in. So uh, the same goods, as you said, you can get them elsewhere, including on sportsdirect.com in some cases. Yeah. And now you'll find the same brands on houseoffraser.com. So is this the market just eating itself? Yeah. And you'll also find that, you know, before you could order goods on House of Fraser that they mightn't have in the Dundrum store. They deliver them for free to the Dundrum store. You collect them there, but that's now ended. Now you've got to pay six euro for delivery, similar to Sports Direct, which is six ninety nine. And do you think the idea is in part to maybe encourage people to research in store and then buy online or or vice versa? You know, is this is this the logic behind this? I'm not quite sure, Laura, because it's an interesting comment. If you go to most stores now, what I do personally is I'll try the clothes on, go home and see if I can get it cheaper online. And I think that's what most people do, isn't it? Um, Yeah, no, I think so, for sure. And and for sure, it is cheaper online. And there's a few other variables, as uh, you know, as you, I think we were talking about earlier. Uh, there's uh, there's uh, cheaper prices if you can use the UK site and uh, get them to deliver to Parcel Motel or exactly. somewhere like that, and pay your three euro package fee or whatever and collect it at the locker. So, some what what are the other changes then at, at House of Fraser? Some of the 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 own the sort of own brand clothing is yeah. Is so apparently now, I favor. mean, as you know, Sports Direct aren't always very forthcoming with their plans and strategies and what they hope to do. But it's understood that they're going to finish with um, House of Fraser's own brands, which were called Linian. That was a homeware brand and a fashion brand. And Biba again, they had homewares and fashion. So, I mean, if you just if you walk into the Dundrum store, you'd see that they occupy quite a lot of um, retail space at the moment. 
So that could be quite a big gap there if they were to lose that and not able to fill it with someone else. So, but there's rumours then traffic going the other way that French Connection might open That's right. a concession. They've started advertising for um, a concession manager for this new concession. You might recall French Connection had its own outlet right beside House of Fraser on the second floor, um, but it, it finished with that lease last year, I think, or 2017. So that might be a welcome return for shoppers to see that brand back. Now, I don't know how French Connections done drum store was performing before it closed, but the, the company as a whole uh, has, hasn't, you know, been having a great time lately on the pro- profits and revenues uh, front. So is this maybe a sort of almost like a halfway step, really. You close your outlet and you well, open well, a concession. Well, it's, it's a move backwards, isn't it? It has to be because originally you might start as a concession and move up to your own store. But retail is so tough out there at the moment. It's very hard. I mean, we saw last year Green Property sold out of it completely and they own part of the Blanchardstown Shopping Centre. Yeah, and this is a company, obviously, that was, that was you know heavily into retail. Yeah. Blanchardstown is a massive uh, development and it just it sort of called time. I mean, you have to wonder if the rents are sustainable. I mean, back in 2008, Grafton Street, it was the fifth, it sounds crazy, but it was the fifth most expensive shopping street in the world. Now it's still 13th, so it's still well up there. But I mean, if you're encouraging your shoppers to get online, giving them incentives, sign up to a newsletter, get 10% off, get 20% off next week, how are you going to justify paying these enormous rents for shops that people might come in and browse but don't actually purchase them? And one shop that, that's relatively new to Grafton Street in Dublin is is the White Company, the UK chain um, and again, it's a, it's, a, it's a you know it's a very pretty shop. It's got a beautiful layout. It's a lovely feel. It's a nice yeah. place to walk around. Um, but as you say, the the prices are, are maybe off putting. A little bit high, you'd think for what you're, what's on offer there. But as you say, it is a nice experience, and that's more where the successful stores are going. I mean, if you look at, at and other stories, sorry, on Grafton Street also, that's a really nice experience for people to go in and shop, and they've a lot of different. You know, your beauty, your jewellery, your shoes hats. and your clothes, hats. <laughs> Is it the mid-market, do you think, that's the most vulnerable? That's potentially true because if you look at online, it's all ASOS and Boohoo.com, which are very cheap and real mass market goods. And now, I mean, they've struggled a little bit of late themselves, so it hasn't all been one way for them either. But it's brands maybe like French Connection, which are a little bit expensive and you need maybe more of an occasion to, to spend that much. And people don't seem to be spending that much on clothes as they once were. And do you think department stores as a kind of a concept, as a, as a model, that whole, you know, because they were trading on the experience factor as well. Um, does that have a future? You'd have to wonder realistically because online and because online you can find everything you want. Whereas before the department store was the place to go, wasn't it? to have the biggest selection. Now it's all online. So if you're into particular beauty brands and people are getting more specific with everything they want and they purchase. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you look at the trends internationally, you mentioned Sears, but I think it's right across the board. Department stores have struggled and I don't know if, they, if, if they'll survive or they'll grow rather. They might survive, but they may not grow. And on that price conscious but stylish note, thank you very much, Fiona Redden. Thank you. 
That's almost it for this week's Inside Business. Just one more thing. Applications are now open for the Irish Times Innovation Awards. Now in its 10th year, the awards are open to innovators of all sizes, from college startups to PLCs. Past winners have gone on to attract multi-million investments and have come from every sector of the economy, from construction and confectionery to medtech and software. Entry is free, so please, if you have an idea, pitch it to our judges at irishtimes.com slash innovation awards. My thanks for now to Peter Hamilton, Owen Burke-Kennedy and Fiona Redden. This podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. You can get the latest business news straight to your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email on irishtimes.com. We'll be back next week. Until then, thanks for listening.